You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, great to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman completing all their powers is in the spiritual fight. And right here, right now, today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, dear friends, so very good to have you with us this week on Life-Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman. I uh, always like to cover a couple of issues here. Uh, that today's not so much an issue. It's just some interesting stuff in my mind. Uh, Christianity Today put out a column this week, and uh, it, it was called, I'm looking here for the author on Silver. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's Kyle Eidelman. He's a great writer. Uh, and uh, Kyle says that the Bible has a clear and consistent, get a load of this now, party theology. <laughs> I think we've talked about this already on life-changing discipleship. I'm just, I'm thinking we've already talked about it, but I like what he brings up and he, he does it very succinctly, very fast. But if you really wanted to do a fun study in scripture of party theology, you would have a good time of it. One of the places you'd go to, says Kyle, is Leviticus 23. And right there, God tries to get a hold of the calendar. And in Torah, right there in the middle of the law, he says, listen, I want you to celebrate me. I want you to have regular parties year after year, after year, after year. And this is what I want you to do at these parties. And uh, it's pretty important to him because it says, if you don't do this, there is serious repercussions. I want you to be a partying people, annual festivals, have a good time. So all these were kind of commemorative and anticipatory, celebrating what God had done and what he was going to be doing next. But I just think it's great. So you have those kinds of things happening in the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and guess what? You see Jesus as a—how do we say it? It's got to be a better word for it. You see Jesus as a partier. He parties. In fact, he, apparently he parties so much that in Matthew 11, it says, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. That is how much Jesus apparently enjoyed a good time. He also compared, Jesus did, uh, God's kingdom to a party. And if you remember this famous trilogy of stories in Luke 15, one of them was, it turns out that when someone turns to God, a party breaks out in heaven. And uh, th that that story is, is fascinating. I, I'm, of course, I always love looking at the prodigal son. What happens when the prodigal son comes home? Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a party. You remember Jesus said, follow me to Matthew, Levi. And Levi says, all right, I'll follow you. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. In other words, he threw a party. Now, this runs from one end of Scripture to the other because in Revelation, guess what? We got the, we got the wedding supper of the Lamb. Another party that ends up this whole dynamic of human existence, and I just, uh, I just think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Of course, we are a partying people. What we want to do is make sure that in our parties we celebrate 
God, celebrate what he has done, and let that kind of be something about what we need to be doing in days ahead, even in our lives. That is, what we celebrate in God is what we can become. And uh, I think everything we celebrate, I mean, Christmas ought to be a huge Jesus celebration, not a Santa Claus celebration. Easter ought to be a huge resurrection celebration, not a bunny uh, celebration. And right on, Pentecost, we, we don't celebrate hardly at all in the church today, but in my church, we try to make it the biggest day of the year. Balloons and and, and things for kids to jump around in out in the back and and uh, uh, dinner on the grounds and a special speaker. It just ought to be a hilarious, wonderful, incredible day. That day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on the believers, you don't think that's worthy of celebra- celebration, of course. And so let's ride on through the year. We ought to make sure. I even think birthday parties ought to be Jesus celebrations that we're celebrating the life of God in this young child and, um, and on it goes. This, uh, I just think the more we celebrate and the more we make God the center of those celebrations, the more we can say with Kyle Eidelman, Hey, the Bible has a clear and consistent party theology. And so should we now lots of things going on in Ukraine right now. I love again, something that was put out by the national review this week by Jade Nordlinger. He, he has a long article on a world shaking war. And there's lots to say about what Putin and Russia are doing to Ukraine. But I love this line that Jane Nordlinger puts in here. Many in the West regard Putin as manly. In reality, says Jane Nordlinger, he is mainly a bully and a thief. Anyone looking for manliness can look to Putin's adversary in Kiev. And I'm thinking to myself, no kidding. If you want to look for the hero of this story, he, he, he's the one. He's the leader in Kiev. And I, I think about that with our whole lives. We look at sports heroes. Guys, sports heroes, really? Sports, that's just a game. That's just silliness. That's just basically childishness uh, that goes from childhood and we make it a big deal on up into adulthood. Can we stop it with sports heroes? There's no such thing as a sports hero. Uh, I, I, we, we do the same thing with TV. We look at TV. Those are the heroes. We listen to radio. Those are the heroes. Now we have podcasts, podcast heroes. Stop it. Heroes are people who get in the middle of an enormous mess and apply God to the mess. That's a hero. Uh, I'm reminded of this all of a sudden. Um, do you remember a guy named Teddy Roosevelt? April 23rd, 3 p.m. He, uh, he was in Paris, I believe, and he was before a, a crowd that, according to the Edmund Morris biography, um, there were ministers there in court dress, Army and Navy officers in full uniform, 900 students, and an audience of 2,000 ticket holders. And that day, Teddy Roosevelt delivered a speech called Citizenship in a Republic. But most people remember that speech as the man in the arena. And he delivered an inspirational and impassioned message that drew huge applause. And the most famous lines I'm about ready to give to you, I mean, made that speech a wild success. And frankly, in some history classes, even today, you kind of need to get through these sentences, memorize them to get through the class. And this is what Teddy Roosevelt said. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles 
or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs but comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. If you want to know a hero in today's world, in any world, ever, it's the person who gets down in the middle of the mess, stays there a good long while, and tries to apply God to the situation. That's the man in the proverbial arena. And that's what we all need to strive to be. All right. One of our sponsors for this broadcast is Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, you don't have to be in Jackson to enjoy all that Wesley Biblical Seminary has. Uh, listen, I've taught here for 33 years, one of the best seminaries in the world. There's no question about that. And it's a place where you ought to be coming and checking out the various wonderful things that Wesley can offer you. So just go to wbs.edu. We have a lay program called the Wesley Institute. Uh, it's a great program, takes you through the Bible. And next year, we're starting a theology year that uh, once a week, you'll be able to sit down, watch it on Zoom, or actually come to Jackson, Mississippi, and, and be a part of the program here. But most people listen to it via Zoom and just enjoy so very much. Both are biblical, which takes you through the Bible in a year, or takes you through a lot of the theological foundations for a year. We have an undergraduate program. Yep, we've got a college that you need to discover. we got a master's program and even a doctorate program. Really something for all serious disciples. So you need to check it out at wbs.edu. That's wbs.edu. Now, I want to talk with you today about a subject that I think is oh and so incredibly important. And it's about accountability. Every morning I wake up and I go through five Psalms. Now, there's about 10 things actually that I click off that I do every morning when I wake up early. But one of the things I do is spend time in Scripture going through the Psalter, the Psalms. And I do five a day, which means I get through the whole Psalms in one month. And so I do that, obviously, 12 times a year, just go through these. But every day I, I wake up and do and pray through five Psalms. Then I pray through a proverb. So if today were, say, the 11th, I would go to Proverbs 11 and I would pray those proverbs over one of my family. And so I just kind of do that on a regular ongoing basis. The more I go through the song or the, the proverbs, the more I see, man, there's some really consistent themes here that keep coming back. And uh, one of my friends years ago said, yeah, you ought to check out accountability in the proverbs. And I've, I've ever since he said that these things absolutely slap me around on a daily basis. For instance, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Whoa, that's Proverbs 12.1. Uh, some more in, in Proverbs 12. The way of a fool seems right to him, 
but a wise man listens to advice. Here's another one out of the Proverbs. A mocker resents correction. He will not consult the wise. Now, this one seems to indicate, listen, we ought to love correction and we ought to consult those who can give us correction. Uh, here's another one in the Proverbs. Listen to advice and accept instruction, and in the end, you will be wise. Y'all remember uh, Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. On and on these goes. There's so very many of these that are hilariously important in our lives. This is one. Uh, Proverbs 29, 1. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So this discipline, correction, advice, consultation, discernment, instruction, sharpening, confession, rebuke, they're all expressions of an accountability desirable for people trying to walk with God. And so just recognize that this is something God wants for your life. He knows that you need in your life. And if you don't get it, you're always going to be less than Jesus wants and needs for you to be. I invited a friend named Jerry to come and share in a class. Uh, she uh, she was going to come and share in my discipleship in the home class because I wanted my students to hear how scarred by sin, and not always our own, that an individual can be, and how free we can become in Christ. So a little quick excerpt. I'm just going to read this to you. A quick excerpt out of her opening remarks. Jody said, I'm afraid I'm going to blow you out of your socks. Some of the things that go on in homes today are astounding. My sobriety date is, and she named the date, she goes, I'm an adult child of two alcoholics. I'm a survivor of child abuse and child sexual abuse. I drank 21 years and was addicted to prescription drugs for seven. I've seriously attempted suicide two times, once with drugs, once with gunshot. I've been in numerous psychiatric hospitals and have been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic, manic depressive, and I have had 18 shock treatments. I also have an eating disorder, anorexia, and bulimia. People like me tend to grow up to be alcoholics and drug addicts, marry them, or both. I get to mark all of the above. Now, I'd already informed my class that Jerry was a valued friend of the family and, frankly, a frequent babysitter of my infant son at the time, and it made them all the more eager to discover how in the world she'd recovered from such a debilitating start in life. And her reply was simple. Uh, basically expressing two emphases that are inseparable, accountability and Jesus Christ. Having other people to encourage her and hold her to her commitment to salvation and sobriety was a key factor in Jerry's recovery. She says today, I, I believe that God now has a purpose for my life and that he's going to make something really beautiful out of something that started really ugly. Well, I, I know what she's like now. And I'd say the accountability to an intimate small group and to Jesus Christ were her only hope. And you can mark it well, her life has been redeemed. So this whole thing of accountability, I know, can be one of the things that sets us free. In fact, I'm often reminded of the Hebrew word for salvation, yesha, uh, with cognates meaning to make wide, to make roomy, to be well off to be free, to be prosperous. The word Yeshua, Hebrew for Jesus, comes from the same word group. Now, this is hilarious to me. 
What does salvation mean? It means to make wide the possibilities, to make roomy your life, to be free. And I'm thinking, if that's what accountability can do for me, I want it. And folks, there's no salvation without accountability. And so we need to ask, why wouldn't we want accountability in our lives? And the first thing I think of is most of us will say something like this. I am accountable to God. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking, kind of reminded, you, you all know this story, the story of a little girl calling from her bedroom on a stormy night. She goes, Mommy, Mommy, I I'm scared. Please come here. So from the living room, the mother tries to comfort her daughter, saying, God is with you. God is with you, sweetheart. Just remember, God is with you. And after several moments, the child finally replies, I know that. But mommy, I need somebody with some skin on. Uh, the truth is, God is with us. But that little girl was on target. We need some somebodies with skin on, and God provides them in his body, what he calls his body, the community of believers. Now, the fact of the matter is, we live in a nation that basically prides ourselves in the individualistic pursuit of happiness. But I always appreciate the author named Tom Sign, who says, you know, an authentic study of the gospel shows that an individualistic pursuit of happiness should not be the goal of a Christian. In fact, it would be difficult to find a goal for human life that's more antithetical to everything Jesus represented. I think it's important that we recognize, I don't do this Christian life my way. I do it God's way, and God has a body. I'm doing it with the church. I'm doing it with other believers. You know, our church, or I'll say our church, when I say our church, I'm thinking about the, the church in Jackson, Mississippi, where I'm at, but there is a there is a church in our church <laughs> that, that makes an altar call nearly every Sunday for those who want to receive Christ. So they go up there and they start praying, and as the respondents are signing their cards, right? Because when they come up to the altar... They write down their name, their address, their telephone number. As they're doing this, an associate pastor kind of whispers in there, you know, that when you join this church, you're committing yourself to full involvement in the small group and tithing programs as well. And the guy was telling me this as, you know, when we say that to them, they either blink, laugh faintly, maybe try to save face, but some will look you straight in the eye and say, let's go. And that's the sort of thing we quit saying I'm doing it my way, and start saying, I want to join up with a group that seems to be headed God's way. Then there's this. I think a lot of people are just afraid of the vulnerability, afraid to tell you who I really am. Uh, years ago, there was, a, there was a church that was constructed in Hillsboro, Illinois. Uh, decades later, about like eight decades later, it was, it was constructed in 1903. Several decades later, eight or nine decades later, it was... Uh, it was now going under the name of Church Street Pub. It was a bar and restaurant. The stained glass windows remained, but the Sunday school room now had a bar. Plans were in the works to make the pulpit a stage. Pews were cleared out to make for a dance floor. And there was a guy named Dale Lingle. He, he was owner of the pub at the time, and he, he noted a conspicuous absence. Two pictures of Jesus, once featured in the sanctuary windows, had been taken down and donated to a local church. And so Lingo was asked, why'd you take Jesus down? And he observed, having him in here would make me feel real uncomfortable. Now, that's an interesting comment. 
having Jesus and those whom he provides to keep us sharp and pure, his body, uh, maybe it's something that's too uncomfortable for us. I'm reminded that in the Lloyd C. Douglas's classic, The Robe, any of you ever read The Robe? There was a character in there named Marcellus, and he asked justice after Christ had been ascended in heaven, they're not going to see him bodily again. Uh, the, the character Marcellus says, where do you think he went? And, and Justice says, I, I don't know, my friend. I only know that he is alive, and I'm always expecting to see him. Sometimes I feel aware of him as if he were close by. Now Justice smiles faintly, his eyes are wet with, wet with tears. It says, you know, it keeps you honest. You have no temptation to cheat anyone or to lie to anyone, or to hurt anyone, when for all you know, Jesus is standing beside you. Whew, says Marcel. I'm afraid I'd feel real uncomfortable being perpetually watched by some invisible presence. Oh, no, 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 no. Not if that presence helped you defend yourself against yourself, Marcellus. It's a great satisfaction to have someone standing by to keep you at your best. Now that's what accountable relationships are. Someone standing by to keep you at your best. Sometimes correcting, sometimes encouraging, sometimes rebuking, sometimes cheering you, but always there to keep you at your best. Now there's lots of other things we could include in this. I'm thinking right now, you know, someone saying, yeah, you know, I don't really need that. I got Jesus and and I go to church, and I listen to the sermon, I think I'm okay. Now, one of my friends made an intriguing comment about a book I'd written years ago called The Accountability Connections. And he says, you know that book, uh, Dare to Discipline? It was a James Dobson book, written years ago. And I, I said, yeah, yeah, I remember that book. He said, what we really need today, said my buddy, we need someone to write a book called Dare to Be Disciplined. Dare to, dare to be disciplined. We need to get a fresh vision of what it means to ask others into our lives to help us be the disciplined disciples God intends. No kidding. We need to dare to be disciplined. And I suspect no one is more like this than me. Uh, years ago, years ago, years ago, I threw the discus for the University of Kansas. I was at the NCAA track and field championship my final year in college. And so, uh, there was a bunch of people there watching the shot put competition and my event, the discus was over. So I just finished toward the top of the pack, but it wasn't, I wanted to be national champion. I wasn't national champion that day, which means I will never be national champion. So I was kind of half watching, half lamenting that my career is now over, but now we're watching the shot put competition and an athlete from another university looked over at me and he said, Hey, are you Friedman from Kansas? I said, yeah, 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 I am. He said, well, we were just talking about you. I said, who's we? He says, me, Tom Telez, and some of the guys. I said, what? Now, y'all don't know who I'm talking about here, but Tom Telez was at that time known as the greatest track and field coach in the world. He was Carl Lewis's coach. Now, Carl Lewis won, won many Olympic gold medals. And so if Tom Teles is talking about you, you want to know what he's saying. So I reached over and I kind of poked uh, Tom Teles on the shoulder and he looked back. I said, hi, my name is Matt Friedman from Kansas. And uh, I was just kind of wondering, 
what you were saying about me a few moments ago. He said, well, we were talking about your form. I'm thinking, all right, my form, you know, I'm pretty much smaller than the rest of these guys. I'm not nearly as strong. I can't bench press as much as everybody I'm competing against. It's my speed and my form that kind of keeps me in the game here. So I can't wait. I said, well, what about my form? And he said two words that uh, I'll never forget. And the two words were, it stinks. I said, what? My form stinks? He says, yeah. In the middle of your spin, you are hopping through instead of pivoting through. I said, well, if I pivot instead of hopped, uh, how much would uh, difference would that make? He said, oh, probably about 20 feet. So I added 20 feet to my to Maya throw that day. And guess what? I win the event, but I didn't win the event because I hopped instead of pivoted and I'd always hopped instead of pivoted. So I, I, I said, Hey, thanks coach to It was an honor. I went to go find my coach. My, my coach is also a very famous track and field coach a guy named Bob Timmons. And uh, I went up to Bob Timmons and I said, uh, we called him Timmy affectionately. Everybody called him Timmy. So I said, Timmy, I was just told by Tom to that if you would have changed my form from a hop to a pivot in the middle of it, I would have won this meet today. And I was kind of upset. And uh, he looked me right in the eyeballs and he said, Matt, when you came to the University of Kansas, I told you over and over again to change that hop into a pivot. Tried to work with you, Matt, but you didn't want to have anything to do with it. You kept telling me, Coach, that's just my style. And boy, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I remembered. No kidding. I had said that. I thumbed my nose at correction. I didn't want to do it any other way, but I, I wanted to do it my way. My Remember that in their famous song? Frank Sinatra sings, I did it my way. Yeah, right. You don't want to do it your way. You want to trade in your way for God's way. And typically what that's going to mean, what, what that's going to mean is a lifetime of correction. Yeah, you're going to have a one big correction called repentance at the point of your salvation. But the rest of your life is going to be correcting things that need correcting that you might be the best God ever intended you to be. I'm going to tell you. One of the reasons we never get around to accountability relationships is we always think there's going to be a better time to do it later, later. In fact, one of my friends, Keith Drury, wrote a little book on accountability. And in that book, he says, you know, why, why haven't you started? He says, I, I suspect procrastination is the most common excuse. And what's the ready, rem, remedy for procrastination? Accountability. But if you're a procrastinator, you're probably procrastinating on taking the cure. Procrastinators especially need accountability. It's the antidote for this disorder of your will. Action breaks the bindings of procrastination. So start now, says Keith. Do something. As soon as you lay down this book, go ahead, break the shackles of procrastination, take action. The reason you've become such a procrastinator is your habit of reading or listening to great ideas you'd like to do, but never taking action on them. It's time to change all that today. And indeed, we need to change it today. So I wrote a book on it called The Accountability Connection. Out of print, can't buy it. Maybe maybe some used copies there on, uh, on uh, Amazon.com, but 
on the whole, what I would suggest to you is this. We need people. I, I think it was Chuck Swindoll who says, you know, I need someone to come that has license, that I give permission to come in, put their knuckles on my desk, look right past the facade of Chuck Swindoll and look straight into my soul and say, you're not fooling me, pal. I see what's going on. You need to change. He says, I need people like that in my life. And I think we all need people like that in our lives. And furthermore, I think we all need to get in small discipleship groups, band or class meetings for John Wesley is what he called them. Discipleship group would what be, I think Jesus would call it what he was doing, but on the whole, into small groups of people that we actually give permission to talk to us and tell us things we need to know. Now, fully recognizing most people aren't going to do this. You're going to say, do this, and they're not going to do it. Let me tell you what I did not long ago. I went on what I called the listening tour. And what I would do is I'd just say uh, to a friend, come in, sit down, sit down in my office, and uh, I'm going to ask you to speak into my life right now. Uh, I don't need for you to encourage me. I, I feel encouraged by your friendship. What I need to hear from you is at least three things right now you think I can sharpen up on because I want to be Jesus' full-orbed disciple. But I've got the feeling that you can share some things with me no one else will share. And you want to know something? I did that with about four people the last time around I did it, and every one of them had some really good things to, sh to, to say to me that I've tried to improve on since then, and I've been a better man because of that so-called listening tour. Now, the old Wesley band meetings would get together, and the first thing that would happen is uh, the first question they'd ask each other in those old band and class meetings was, what known sin have you committed since the last time we were together? And the leader led. Now, that may be how we still need to do things, but I'm going to suggest to you, maybe there just needs to be some set-apart time in your discipleship group, maybe monthly, maybe every other month, where you just sit down with people and let's just say there's four or five of you sitting in a group and you decide we're going to have a three hour meeting here. And if we end up early, we'll end up early. But let's just say, OK, we got five people in this meeting. One of them's named Matt. Matt, we want to share with you some things we think you need to hear and share encouragement, uh, share correction, share straight up rebuke, uh, share what what we think you need to do in order to really let your life widen and broaden. Remember that salvation word widen, broaden. Uh, to know holy prosperity, we want to tell you some things that we think you need to hear. And in return, I can ask some questions about what that might mean at a deeper level. But wouldn't that be great? It's almost like you'd, every person needs to have a board of trustees that you say, I need for you to speak into my life. Will you please, please do it? If we had more relationships like that, I think we'd be so much stronger. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're waiting for that to happen at the maximal kind of level that it ought to happen at, you probably shouldn't be waiting. You need to take action. What I did was the listening tour. What we probably ought to do with our discipleship groups is have a time every other month where we're frankly talking to each other and very honest, uplifting, and also rebuking. And rebuking is a positive word if it's done well. Rebuking terms. Boy, we got a lot of work for ourselves, don't we, here? You cannot be God's huh, enlightened, full-orbed, 
uh, well-developed. Uh, the, 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 the Greek word is teleos, which is whole, complete, perfect disciple without serious rebuke, serious correction, serious advice. And if you're a real disciple, you'll go seek it out. All right, it's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listening to Life-Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedemann. So check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship. Also, make sure to check out our books at Amazon.com, particularly that 5Q Method of Discipleship book we talked about in the podcast not too long ago. But listen, we need you all in discipleship groups, and that's one great way to make it happen, the 5Q Method of Discipleship. Uh, So always, always, always tell other people about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. I want you to love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples. God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.